As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. The Athletic. The race is on, and as Red Bull continues to dominate the 2023 F1 season, it seems a foregone conclusion that the RB19 will go down as yet another great Adrian Newey car. But what makes him so successful, and where are the next generation of Newey's? I'm Ed Straw, and joining me to answer those questions and many more are Ben Anderson and Glenn Freeman. Well, Glenn, welcome back to the F1 podcast. I think you can probably guess why we've called you up for this one, given your bring back V10's expertise often means you cross paths with Mr. Newey in his various forms. I thought you'd call me up because no one else was available. That too, <laughs> that too, in fairness. Needed me off the bench. Uh, yeah. Now, obviously, uh, bring back V10's new series launches next month. Um, yeah, it's, it's it's quite rare that you get through research for an episode without having a reason to dive into Adrian's amazing book or go through some of the incredible interviews he's given over the years. Uh, his his story is fascinating. The way his mind works is fascinating. I'm not about to claim that myself or any of us here understand how his brain works. Yet for me, the guy is he he is the definition of of genius, and that, that's. That's fascinating. And we're just incredibly lucky that he's been around for so long. So many great technical minds either get burnt out or pursue other things or they lose their mojo. He's been around for decades and, and he's, you know, he's proving right now, Red Bull are proving right now, he's still still the best in the business. So we're very lucky to have him. Yeah, that longevity is absolutely astonishing when you consider how much F1 has changed. I'm sure we're going to get into that in some detail. And Ben Anderson, how are you doing? Obviously, you've crossed paths with Newey extensively while covering F1 as well. Well, actually, uh, we kind of missed each other like ships in the night because the period where I was covering F1 intensely in the paddock is the period where he was most disinterested in Formula One and uh, tended to be doing other things with boats and whatnot. Uh, so I tend to be an admirer of Newey from afar, although obviously from a competitive standpoint, it's very disappointing that yet another of his creations is now dominating Formula One this year. Yeah, it was interesting that period when he was sort of stepped back a bit from Formula One and then he suddenly piled back in. So I'm sure we'll talk a little bit about that as well. So you've just proved that there's no reason for you to be on this podcast at all. But in, in fairness, Absolutely. Thanks for in having fairness me. <laughs> during that period, his influence was still very clear within Red Bull, even if it wasn't quite so present in the same way. So we'll get into a lot of that as we uh, talk through the topic in the podcast. But Ben, really, before we start looking at that bigger picture, it is worth reflecting on what Red Bull has achieved under Newey in this new F1 ground effects era. They've won 24 out of 29 Grand Prix, well on the way to another World Championship double. That may have made things pretty predictable but are we in danger of not talking enough about how remarkable this achievement is i mean i wish we didn't have to talk about it because uh, i'd like to be enjoying a three or four way fight at the front but alas we are where we are and uh i mean yeah it's incredible um 
the run of success that Red Bull is on. They've had, I think, nine one-twos, I calculated, since the start of 2022. They had 16 in total from 2009 to 2016. And actually, 2016 is the last time they had a one-two until the last two seasons. So it shows how fallow that period in the hybrid era was for, for Red Bull. Um, they're probably going to break that uh, PB, aren't they? Um, by the end of this season, probably. Um if not the next season, almost certainly. And I worked out that their win ratio is currently 83%. You mentioned 24 out of 29. So they're slightly behind the the 91% of the Mercedes 2014 to 2016 steamroller. And even if they clean sweep this season, they won't quite get to that. It'll be 89%, but it's in the ballpark. So we're looking at basically a an approximation of Mercedes dominance at the start of the hybrid era, except we don't have two drivers properly fighting it out for the world championship. I think the uh, the numbers are are staggering. You know, even just seeing in Ed's question, twenty four out of twenty nine. I've now they're so dominant this year. That I think I've recreated last year in my head and assumed it was a closer contest than it was, or that <laughs> Ferrari in particular maybe won more races than than they did. But I thought a key part of what Ed said there was not talking enough about how remarkable Red Bull is. That's exactly what we do every single time a team is dominant in F1 because most people feel the way Ben described earlier, where you want competition. So quite often we end up framing the team doing the dominating as the bad guys. And we're not going to get into the cost cap because whatever they went over the cost cap by is not the reason they are dominating right now. So pure performance-wise, they're not the bad guys here. The bad guys are... Ferrari and Mercedes, who aren't doing a good enough job, just like the bad guys when Mercedes were dominating were Ferrari and Red Bull for not doing a good job, or Renault for producing a rubbish engine. Uh, So these things always get skewed. And eventually it happened to Ferrari at the start of the 2000s with Michael Schumacher. Ross Braun has said, for a while everyone loved seeing Ferrari win again, and then people got tired of it. So I think with so many races now, with so much dominance from Red Bull already, it... It feels like they've been dominating for longer than they have when actually they've only been dominant for about a year, like a 12-month period, because it was halfway through last season when the RB18 finally got it together and proved just how good it is. But I think we had a feeling even last year that maybe they were onto something the other teams weren't because when we saw the proper first Red Bull for these rules, once they brought out the proper spec uh, during testing, not the, the launch spec... It looked different from everybody else, didn't it? And it immediately made you think, what have they worked out that everybody else hasn't? And everything we've seen then, has, uh, since then has proven they worked out a lot of things that nobody else has. And some people still haven't. Yeah, I wanted to pick up on one of the points you made about the cost cap, because I think it's worth interrogating, because I keep seeing this being raised as a, well, they overspent and that's why they're ahead. I'm not going to make excuses for them. They were bang to rights on it. But the cost cap overspend was 1.8 million. However, that was based upon them declaring some tax break related stuff they shouldn't have. So as the FIA stated, the effective overspend was just over 400,000. Now, that clearly was something they should not have done. But it absolutely doesn't add up to this advantage. This advantage is earned through just being a phenomenally good, phenomenally strong team. And also they retain that desire always to improve. They're never resting on their laurels and getting complacent about how well they're doing. And it's always interesting to see how different teams approach being in a good position or struggling with what they say. You do see a little bit of variation between the the, the teams. And I guess, Ben, there's just a fundamental truth, isn't it? That when teams are doing brilliantly well, at the time, they tend to not be appreciated as much. I imagine in 20 years' time, people will look back and say, well, Red Bull were absolutely incredible then. And when the cars turn out to do demos or whatever, everyone will be really excited. Whereas when you're in the midst of it, people just get sick of the sight of it because it's just every week out it goes. It's a cut above. Barcelona recently, a very aero-dependent track. They were miles ahead with Max Verstappen, obviously a key part of that because he's also so good. Yeah, that's the other thing that you have to to throw in there. It's the driver making the most of the tool. I mean, Verstappen is miles clear of the rest, but Sergio Perez in the other car isn't. And it was similar in Red Bull's previous era of dominance. Sebastian Vettel was miles ahead of the rest, but Mark Webber wasn't. So it depends on the driver too. But the, the scary thing about Red Bull, I think, is they've had these two periods of dominance now, if we call, you know, last 12 months, as Glenn put it, is the fairest way to put it. Now and ongoing, we suspect... 
and obviously 2010 to 13, just before the engines changed to hybrid. But if they'd had a better engine through those Mercedes years, it's very likely they would have been miles more competitive. There was always a feeling that those cars were much better than they looked. And I'm not trying to revisit history exactly because obviously Newey was less involved then because he was so unhappy and upset by the the engine disparity, he even declared it an engine formula. And obviously he's there for aerodynamics. But I think he would have been more invested had Red Bull had a better engine and therefore you would have had a much greater competition and Red Bull probably would have been even more successful than they have been. Yeah, there's a bit to be said for that, certainly. Although they had their problems at times in that era, also there were wind tunnel problems at one stage as well they had to work on. And it wasn't always quite as simple as Red Bull had the best car and Mercedes had the best engine. But yeah, certainly there was a big restriction in terms of what Renault were doing and a feeling that Renault were more interested in the marketing side than actually the business of going about winning races some might say there's some of that attitude still reflected today but we're not going to talk about that (laughs) on this particular one but it is strange isn't it Glenn that we've now got into this almost alternating periods of dominance in Formula 1 if you look at the 21st century there's a couple of years where there hasn't been a dominant force but you basically had Ferrari dominance then there was that little period where things were working quite well and you had Ferrari versus McLaren and Braun dived in there. Then it was Red Bull, then Mercedes, then back to Red Bull. And then every now and again, Ferrari tries to flare up again and, and fails. So it has sort of become the the way of things that we have to almost get used to in modern F1. Yeah, it's, from a neutral fan perspective or a neutral journalist perspective, it's, it's quite frustrating. I, I think there are a couple of factors behind it. One is that as the teams get better and better there are they they are eliminating more and more of the variables so it means that every team on the grid whether you're looking at red bull or at williams every team is getting closer to their ultimate potential on more weekends than not than we would have seen in the past so you are more likely to just have the the best team will keep winning more than um more than it would have done in the past you don't have um unreliability mixing things up uh, as much and also just teams are teams are so big now and so it's it takes so long to turn them around that whenever a team gets an advantage whenever they get it right it's no longer a case as it might have been in previous eras where all you need to do is is a quick redesign of your car and, and and you can you can achieve what they're achieving because the cars are so complex the processes involved in changing a design and understanding a design are so complex as well so it does feel that i almost want to say modern science the modern science that's behind f1 means that unfortunately until we can get to a point where the teams are fighting on a much more level playing field and just hopefully all the things F1 is trying to do will squeeze them up a bit. We are going to be in this situation where you do have whoever's doing the best job will win a lot more than perhaps the best teams of the past will do. I think Glenn's point about how good the teams have become is really important because it's been the case for a while now and it seems particularly acute now that you basically need a massive rule change to knock a team off its perch. I mean, it took two really to take Mercedes down. You had the kind of 2017 big uh, steroid aero regs, which kind of cut their winning percentage down from the 90s into like the 70s and Ferrari were able to get close. Red Bull were able to win a few races. And then they had to have another go in the kind of COVID period where they delayed the regs and trimmed the cars for 21. And we finally got the epic contest we'd wanted for so long. And of course, by then they'd already signed off another major rule change, which is obviously about making the racing better and many other things, the sport more um, efficient and cost-effective. But there was also a hope of levelling the playing field and not having a dominant team. And it's just skewed us the other way and sent Red Bull into the stratosphere and now everyone else is struggling. But it's kind of been the way really since the 2000s, I think. You know, Ferrari were pegged back with rule changes in the middle of that decade. Like Glenn said, the teams are so good, it takes a massive kind of pulling of the rug if you like from underneath the technical structures and teams to get a bit lost down their own rabbit holes um, to have a big shake-up of the order because they're all just so good and the, the crazy thing is that the spread across the entire field 
is probably closer right now than it's ever been or certainly has been in, in, in recent years. I mean, Ed, you love the back markers. You must know when they're the closest to the front that they could possibly be. I know there's that great outlier of 2009, isn't there, where the spread was ridiculous. But are there, have there been many examples where the spread from front to back is as close as it is right now? The problem is that the spread from first to second in the pecking order is, is one of the biggest gaps in the whole field. And the teams at the front just just always do the best job now. Yeah, exactly. Uh, the gap in Barcelona, I think, fastest to slowest was about 2.5%, 2.6%, which is... Really, that's pretty, nothing. Yeah, pretty pretty tight. Certainly a big chunk closer than last year. I think it was about 3.6% in Barcelona last year. You know, you do get years like 2009. There are a few years in the 70s when things got quite tight. Occasionally you had ultra stragglers, as it were, but the sort of kit car era with the Hewland gearbox and the Cosworth DFE, and you sort of cobble it all together. Uh, was it was a very specific moment in time, and yeah, this all feeds back into what you were saying earlier about teams are much better at getting the most out of their cars. There's less fluctuation, less variables, which does lead to this potential for pulverizing uh, dominance, and just the problem of how long it takes to recover. Now we've talked about Mercedes bringing upgrades recently setting on a new design direction but we're talking about well start of next year they can do a new car and they can maybe take a step but even then I'd be surprised if Mercedes do enough to be at Red Bull level by the start of next year because you're trying to catch up so much all the time Red Bull are just there serenely carrying on on the same uh, development path that they started on so they've not had to deviate they've not had to take a step back they've not had to take a 90 degree right turn Every time you do that, the teams that are not doing that gain an advantage. So it's the same with Ferrari. They've had a bit of a shift in direction. That's going to take time to exploit. And that's one of the other crucial things that teams have failed to do. Not only have they let Red Bull dominate, but in this year where Red Bull's obviously got the ATR disadvantage, not just because it was top of the championship last year and will be when the ATR's reset for the second half of this year, but it's got an extra 10% reduction for the cost cap thing. But they're making that whole equation really easy for them to manage because Red Bull is going to win this season quite easily. So it just, that pressure is taken off them and it, it becomes a virtuous circle for Red Bull. And I think regardless of the the ATR advantages you might have as a team trying to catch Red Bull versus the cost cap restrictions that are kind of limiting your ability to do that, I think it's a bit frightening that both Mercedes and Ferrari, who until Aston Martin rode into the picture this season were the nearest challengers or the most likely to challenge have both basically abandoned their alternative concepts because there might have been some hope in this idea that you have three competing concepts and yes Red Bull starts out as the best one but they might reach the the limit of that development sooner and start to not see the gains after year mid-year two or even into season three but actually what's happened is Mercedes and Ferrari have run into that problem much, much sooner, haven't been able to develop their concepts into anything like a credible challenge. And now everyone's just converging on the Red Bull solution. And the problem there is that Red Bull was so far advanced in understanding that concept and further down the road in terms of development. I can't see how anyone catches them up until the rules change drastically, which is what, 2026? Yeah, that does seem like quite a bleak prediction, but it's perfectly realistic. Sorry. Uh, it is It is realistic because nobody else has come up with something major, a major different direction that Red Bull's had to pursue and they're all having to change. So it, it is possible and it just becomes very, very difficult to make those gains. It's, it's feasible. Something could happen. They could discover something Mercedes or Ferrari with their alternative paths that Red Bull's missed, but most likely it's not going to be the case because all the time Red Bull's carrying on its development path. It can also have a little bit of a look at this, that and the other and think, oh, is there something that might work there? No, we don't need to do that. So yeah, it just becomes less likely, but it's possible though. I don't want to condemn the next uh, the next few years and that's why people start to talk about whether there'll be a little rule tweak or something that just slightly changes the parameters. I absolutely don't think there should be. I see no evidence that there will be either. But yeah, you never know in, in Formula One what might happen. But everything that we've said so far in this podcast just underlines this all goes back right to the very beginning with this car, last year's car. This is an evolution of last year's car. That was just the right concept from the start, which... I think is going to connect very pertinently to Adrian Newey, who we'll get onto in depth in the next section. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? 
Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Right, Glad, let's talk about Adrian Newey because probably the most remarkable thing about Red Bull is that it has evolved itself and set itself up to make the most of him, which is not an easy thing to do. So why do you think it works so well? I think one of the things it comes back to is what Ben mentioned at the start. Ben said he didn't really cross paths with kind of day-to-day Newey involvement in F1. And I, I think that's one of the reasons he's still here. And it's a credit to Red Bull that whenever he's perhaps felt burnt out or fed up or wants a new challenge, they've let him drift off and explore other things. You know, Ben mentioned the kind of looking at America's Cup and boats and that sort of thing. Knew he was talking about that 20 years ago and he was at McLaren that one day he wanted to do that sort of stuff. Um, as the Aston Martin Valkyrie, the, the supercar that he got involved in as well. What always fascinated me during those years where we said he wasn't sort of day-to-day involved was whenever it went wrong... Red Bull seemed to make a point of telling of of letting it get out there that oh it's okay, it's okay Adrian's coming back Adrian's taking a look at the car Adrian's going to fix it all. I could never tell if if that was the truth or if that was if that was being put out there to appease people maybe even appease um Dietrich Mateschitz at the top of Red Bull it was it just always seemed funny. We see it with Ferrari still today don't we? It it, it doesn't take much to go wrong at Ferrari before you hear that Rory Burns uh, picked up a pencil again and is trying to help out. Um so, but I, th- I think the fact that they've let him do that is indicative of how they've treated him ever since he went there. We, we know so much more about him now that we know McLaren was a terrible fit for him. He had success there, but it makes total sense that he got fed up there and wanted to move. And Rebel's probably been able to learn from some of the mistakes that Williams and McLaren made when they had Newey beforehand. Look at the things that, for want of a better phrase, pissed him off. <laughs> and don't do them. Give him freedom. Trust him. Also believe that that it's not a one-man operation. He's over time. He's been able to to bring in people that he wants, develop people that he wants, have a big team around him. He would be the first person to tell you, you can't just call this an Adrian Newey car. You know, he he told Mark Hughes, didn't he, last year? There were specific bits that he did. Um, he talked a lot about the suspension, which, as we now know, is one of the huge. Uh, perform distinctive performance generators on this car so Red Bull have just they've managed every element of having him very well and it's to their credit and to Christian Horner's credit that Newey is still there we're not that far you know when was it end of 2005 they signed him and we're going to cover at that a bit and bring back V10s in a new series actually we're not that far off of two decades of them having Newey and it, as I say, it's to their immense credit that they found a way to keep him fresh, keep him motivated and to keep him wanting to be involved in F1. Yeah, and it's very interesting how they've set up the team to work so well with him because I think he is unique in the way he does things because he's had a big influence on setting the basic direction of this car and, as you say, did some bits like the suspension design. But he seems to spend most of his time, and he describes himself as a bit of a maverick, he seems to spend most of his time sort of bouncing around, having a bit of a look at things, saying to people, oh, have you had a bit of a look at that? He just seems to have these little injections of creativity around the place. He's not sitting there relentlessly driving the development of the car every minute of the day. The machinery and the excellence of the people around him in Red Bull are doing that. But it's like the the kind of gears are grinding, the handle's turning to crank the development along. But he just throws in this this magic here and there and then they they run with it obviously he 
does his uh, famously does lots of sketching does a lot of stuff well does it all by hand he was uh, obviously there before cad was the the standard and he stuck with doing it the way he'd always done it and logically so he's very very good at doing 2d renderings of 3d ideas and he can conceptualize things well but he has this sort of soft touch element that means yeah he's not a standard f1 technical director he's almost a he's almost a luxury chief technical officer but that luxury is essential if you see what i mean because of what he can add in terms of those ideas and that perspective probably because he's not nose to the grindstone absolutely 100% all the time he's still doing little side projects like that rb17 red bull they're doing which is kind of this hyper car formula 1 sort of it's not really a road car but sort of formula 1 car you can buy if you've got uh, sufficient money kind of thing so he he is still in that unique position he's like a glorified consultant isn't he i felt like sort of yeah, yeah i felt like when he stepped back in the early part of the hybrid era because he was so fed up with the competitive picture that's what that's where red bull's flexibility really came to the fore they were like that's fine rather than lose you to ferrari or whoever might want to chuck money at you to try and rescue them or lose you completely from formula 1 to basically retirement or semi-retirement will give you the longest leash possible do what you want fill your time how best you think it is to be filled and then when we need your help to fix some problem we can't work out in the wind tunnel or what have you we'll just call on you now and again if you would please give us your time and then of course it was a master stroke yeah it was and then as the competitive picture in Formula One has changed and Newey you know does seem to be much more interested the more chance he has of winning and Rebel have come on strong again, he's got more and more involved and you see him at races more and more. Well, I don't, obviously, because I'm not there at the moment and uh, and, and missed the period <laughs> when he came back. Um, but you can see he's 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 becoming more invested, but not in a way that he suddenly just takes over. He's still kind of there, almost like a full-time consultant, just dipping in, helping out where needed, being asked for advice. A bit like Burn is for Ferrari, but more permanent and more invested, I think. And that is a big part, I think, of what keeps Red Bull on top. You touched on something there that I think is important about the fact he's really engaged when there's a, a chance to win. I think he's also a hugely competitive character. Obviously, we know he does a bit of racing himself. He did Le Mans a few years exactly, ago. Exactly, yeah. Ferrari, well, some years ago now, he's done historic racing, he owns cars. But I think he's got a huge competitive racing spirit, that real fire that burns. And there are technical people that have that, but not all of them. Some of them are, are sort of quite happy just sort of being the more more scientists about it, if you want to do that. It's more a, a, a mental exercise. Plenty, aren't there? There's all different ones, and you need a broad church to, to, to get the best out of everyone and the best ideas. But yeah, that absolute competitiveness in Newey and that I think you'd have to say, Glenn, there's a real edge in his character, isn't it? His dealings with teams in the past, the the way he's been willing to conduct himself, he's not kind of a, a shrinking violet, boffin, massive brain, quiet sort of... He's got a huge amount of edge to him as well, and I think that's quite important. Well, he's a racer. So he just, he just happens to be a racer uh, who's a genius as well, who understands the, the, the major technicalities of F1. And, and you're right, he's he's... He's always had that fight in him, whether it's yeah fighting within teams or, or fighting his corner, because he's one of those people who pushes the boundaries so often of of what the rules say, and that's his big thing, isn't it? He's not interested in the spirit of the regulation. He's all about the, the, the direct definition of the wording that's in there. So you often hear... I, I was reading a story um, about him the other day about when the Williams FW14, so the 91 car, came out, knew he had spotted a loophole with something you could do with the front wing end plates that generated a load more performance. Ferrari and McLaren uh, tried to, pro- well, were making a fuss about it. Patrick Head said, maybe we should just take them off. And knew he had a stand-up row with Patrick Head saying, no, like th- get them to protest it because then the rules will get checked and we'll be fine. And he's, so I think fierce what might have been one of the words you used there. And I think that's that's absolutely right. And I would say, it's very easy to take what Ben said and go, ah, oh, so, okay, he's brilliant, but he's only interested if there's glory there. But I think the the key distinction there is what frustrated him about the hybrid era was uh, that it was, there was nothing he could do about it. So I think if, if right now, if Red Bull just didn't have as good a car 
as a couple of the other teams and they had to catch up on the aero side, I think he'd be motivated by that challenge. The motivation went away because Red Bull was tied to an engine supplier who it had fallen out with, who wasn't doing a good enough job. That the the Their destiny was not in their own hands and they were taking a pounding. And I can see why he lost that motivation. But I do think that if someone, and I don't think this can happen in F1 now during a rules cycle, but if someone came up with something amazing next year and suddenly Red Bull are half a second off the pace, I think he would be motivated by making that deficit up because it's within his power to potentially catch back up. And that, that's, that's, that's what he loves about, about the challenge. And I think that's why he's still here and he is still motivated, which, which I think is remarkable. Yeah, and I think the really interesting thing with him is one of the great strengths is his ability to look at a set of regulations and conceptualise where the key areas for performance are. That's what helped Red Bull get the concept right at the start of this new regulations era. And if something new is invented by someone else, he's very good at looking at it and integrating it and understanding it and not getting carried away. So there's a there's a great intellect there. And we should also add, he's not just an aerodynamicist. He's far more than that. We'll maybe get onto that a bit more later on but he's very much a sort of someone who sees the car globally in terms of all its uh, characteristics which uh, yeah it shows he's he's a much more multifaceted thing than just some really clever aerodynamicist far far more than that and I suppose Ben we should really ask is it correct to see him as the preeminent technical figure in F1 today and why does he stand apart if that is the case? Yeah I think it's difficult to look past him just because of that that overall picture he has, you know, he started out as a kind of aerodynamicist designer and then grew into kind of a more leadership role. Um, once he got out of Williams, obviously, because he had Patrick Head above him, he tried to flourish at McLaren. As you said, it didn't really fit. Ron Dennis was too controlling. And at Red Bull, he's he's risen to, you know, to be the overall technical leader. And almost he's so senior now that he's trained a bunch of people underneath him that can do most of it and he just has to be there to kind of gently steer the ship back on course if it ever goes towards the rocks and just success all the way through his career you know so many titles 11 constructors 12 drivers heading for another two this season probably more down the road innovative um trend setting in terms of some of the concepts he's come up with right from the start you know when he was working on the Leighton House March, and right through the Williams days, um, making the most of the double diffuser when Red Bull uh, adopted that in 2009. Obviously, he thought, he says he thought of that, but thought it was illegal. It's one of the situations where I suppose his reading of the rules wasn't quite as on point as it has been in, in other parts of Formula One history. And even in the hybrid era, when he was less interested, you know, Red Bull were pioneering the high rake concept and were leading that and everyone copied, you know, up to the end of kind of 2021 before the rules reset again. And now it's happening again in the ground effect here in this platform control. You know, he's worked specifically on the suspension and that seems to be a key performance differentiator for Red Bull compared to the rest. Kind of at every stage of his career, he's he's rarely, if ever, behind the curve. You might say during the McLaren years, when Ferrari were in their pomp, you had the kind of Ross Braun, Rory Byrne axis of power that was kind of giving him a good fight. And But that's a split role, isn't it? You've got Braun as a kind of technical leader and Byrne as a, as a whiz car designer. And Newey's kind of fused those two things together, I think. And that's what, what makes him different to most other influential figures out there. Yeah, in fact, I think Adrian Newey and Ross Braun are polar opposites, right at the opposite end of the spectrum in terms of what you might call technical director types because Braun is a brilliant technical manager he's great at getting the best out of everyone around him that's not what Newey does Newey's more about injecting those magic ideas and that's why I always think it's a shame that the uh, the Carl Haas team the the force team as it was um they ran cars that were called Lolas even though they weren't really Lolas there was a brief period where they had Braun and Newey it wasn't for very long before that team collapsed, but uh, tantalising. Imagine how well those two could have uh, could have worked together. But yeah, it is absolutely right what you say, Ben. That you can basically you can go all the way back to the March eight eight one of nineteen eighty eight. His first technical directorship was with March. 
that car was the starting point for modern F1 aero, ultimately, the chassis shape, all this kind of thing. And you follow that through, through the Williams FW14B and beyond, through the McLarens, through the Red Bulls. Like you say, high rate, even things like realising that blown diffusers, there was an opportunity to bring that back. Now, the blown diffuser, when it came in with Red Bull, wasn't a new idea. The FW14B had a blown diffuser, but he saw the potential and the reason why it would work. And then even when blown diffuser regs were curbed, there's coanda effect, this kind of thing. So he's always coming up with these things. And I think that's the the thing that really shows why he's so, so significant. And over such a long period of time, it's it's just uh, absolutely remarkable. And I, I guess, Glenn, part of it is that Newey does have a motorsport background that somebody starting out a career now simply cannot, have you go back in f1 all the way to those first steps with fittipaldi when harvey postlethwaite gave him a job uh, when he was relatively not long out of uh, of university so how important do you think that unique cv is yeah i think it's it's really important and you're right to say that'll never happen again because f1 has been through so much change during the time new he's been in it back then you could you know teams teams were made up of of tens of people not even hundreds of people so you had far wider responsibility the cars were simpler but you probably had a wider remit so you learned more about all of the car you said earlier he's got an understanding of everything about the car you know he's an engineer as well as a, an aero genius and all those sort of things now f1 teams are massive uh each each element of the car has its own department so you can go you can go into a team as a junior aerodynamicist now and you'll be part of a massive team and you will only ever focus on aerodynamics probably while you're there unless you get so senior that you get involved in other parts or you transfer to another department you don't go in and be one of these guys who's like okay well the next couple of weeks I'm working on front wing tweaks but then I've got to go over here and do some mechanical stuff it's just how how the role for anybody who works on the technical and car design side of F1 has changed. And I think it will be a shame in the future when guys of Newey's generation, of which there are fewer and fewer still around now, you won't have these guys who have that total broad understanding. Newey was also a race engineer. You know, he engineered in IndyCar in, in the 80s. He, he race engineered uh, in F1. He was Damon Hill's race engineer. When Hill won the world championship, Newey went back into being his race engineer. Again, I don't think we're going to see. I don't think we're going to see that. We do see guys who start off as a race engineer and then move into technical roles, but I don't think you would see someone who's perhaps coming up the technical ranks who, while designing a world championship winning F1 car, is also suddenly engineering Max Verstappen or, or someone like that to to a world championship. So it's a reflection of how F1 has changed, but it's a big benefit I think that Newey has that the generations that come after him won't have. Yeah, I think it's also indicative of how motorsport more widely has changed as well because Newey is fortunate to have started his career in an era where not only was there a Formula One Constructors' Championship, but it was possible to be a constructor in other championships. So he forged you know, most of his early career in the US, sports cars and IndyCar especially, and he, he credits IndyCar as being a really transformative experience for him in terms of understanding how cars work in on a massive range of circuits, different conditions, different speeds, and, and beginning this process of really nailing down how he would approach aerodynamics. And of course, he was able to do that in a category where they were, they were developing and having constructors competitions. Now it's a one-make formula like so many. So you wouldn't get that grounding outside of Formula One anymore, as well as as you mentioned, Glenn, the the broader experience of being in smaller teams where you have to do multiple jobs. So not only is he he's he kind of specialist in the broadest sense, which is I think almost unique. And I I found the Damon Hill race engineering uh, factoid particularly interesting because if you think by that point he's well established as you know a preeminent Formula One car designer, he's knocking on the door of being technical director at a Formula One team. And yet he's got the confidence to just step down and into this race engineering role. It's not like, oh, I haven't done this for a good many years. Maybe not. Maybe we should just get whoever the junior guy was underneath the guy who's left to do it. No, I'll just do that. You know, he's got so much ability in so many areas of and so many facets of racing and racing cars that he can do almost any job. And and that makes him formidable. Yeah, and that has to make it easier for him to 
conceptualize the whole of the car because if you start out now you won't be doing that yes you'll know how your bit might connect to other things but it's so specialized and it's not that these people aren't potentially just as brilliant as Adrian you okay there's not gonna be that many but they're all hugely accomplished if you're working for a Formula One team for any length of time as say an aerodynamicist you will be very very good and you just won't have the chance to do this. And that, that whole generation, his, his generation and those before, had the chance to do that because there were technical directors in the 90s still race engineering. Our very own Gary Anderson was one of them. Uh, Pat Simmons was obviously race engineering. Um, I can't remember the overlap. He went straight from race engineering straight into being technical director. I think he was still probably race engineering briefly while technical director at Benetton as well. But there were those real connections. But now almost things get much more separated and that, you have a lot of technical directors who come from the aero side. You have some who come from the race engineering side, but there's not many who have that opportunity to have such a broad grounding, which just has to be so important. And that feeds back into what Red Bull have done because they've taken someone who's a bit old school in many, well, who is old school by his own admission, who shouldn't work, but they found a way to graft him onto a team in a way that, well, no, to build a team around him, I should say, not graft him onto a team, <laughs> that works both for Newey and works for the team. Whereas we've seen, I guess, Glenn, we've seen a lot of other examples of people who were just as massively important and influential for perhaps shorter periods of time, just falling out of F1 because it can't be made to work. Yeah, and it's it's very difficult. You're not going to get that magic. You've used the word magic a few times now, that magic mix where it just it just fits and we've se- we've seen examples that it wouldn't just fit wherever Newey went. So you can't say that Adrian Newey could go to any other team. Let's use Ferrari as the obvious example. They've, they've had a few goes at getting him over the years and he's never gone there. You can't just say all they need is him and then it will all work. Um, and it's, it, it's, it's as you said, I think you, you briefly made it sound like he kind of had his own little hut in the garden at Milton Keynes and say, oh yeah, what's Adrian done today? Let's go and see, let's go and pick something off his notepad uh, (laughs) before you corrected yourself. I do, I do think that actually as F1 teams become more unwieldy in their structures, it would almost be harder now for another team, even if they got say a five to 10 year, 10 year commitment from him and and a great deal, it'd be really hard for another team to, to, to change its structures and to, to build up to being a team that's that's built around him, but as we said earlier, isn't entirely reliant on him. There's a phrase he he loves the phrase "eureka moment." He he loves having that, being able to step back, think about something, but not under immense pressure. That's why we said he's not doing the day to day stuff, and then just every now and then he can go, "That's it. We're going to try this. We're going to we're going to do that." Um, and another thing that I think is really important, and you see this. Uh, really throughout his history is that he doesn't like he doesn't once he's once he's going in the right direction he doesn't like looking for for massive changes of direction he doesn't go looking for massive jumps he's all about evolution so you talked about the march 881 you know he had the, the couple of march latent house cars he's admitted that his first williamses were evolutions of that and would have been what he would have tried to do with fewer resources um, if he'd stayed at Leighton House. Then you can see the lineage of the of the Williamses. The first few all look very similar. There's a change when he goes to high nose in 95, but then the 95, 96, 97 cars look very similar. His first few McLarens all look very similar. Then there'd be a change. Um, then uh, he went a bit mad <laughs> with the uh, MP418, the, the unraced car. Uh, but he fixed that. And then we saw in 2005, the brilliant MP420, was really what he wanted to achieve with the MP418. He just needed, he needed a bit of better understanding himself. He needed McLaren to give him a bit more freedom, and he needed Mercedes to to work out what on earth he was trying to do, so he wouldn't keep blowing up their engines. And that, I do think that we're in that position now with Red Bull. We we, we can see how similar yet you know, this year's car, as brilliant as it is, is clearly just a refined version of what we had last year. And I suspect that's what we'll see through the majority of this this rules cycle I, I doubt obviously at some point Red Bull will probably get into the area of diminishing returns and other teams have got more ground to make up as they copy Red Bull but I suspect that we're not going to see 
a massive change from Red Bull over the remainder of these regulations because they're going in the right direction. And his view will be just keep making what you've got better because it's working. Yeah, absolutely. I'd agree 100% with that. And also, I think just as a final point on you, it's worth mentioning how well he's been able to stay current because for all his old school credentials and drawing board, he's been very good at harnessing new technologies. He was one of the first to realise the potential of CFD in Formula One and that kind of thing. He was, even at Leighton House, he was talking about some of the technologies needed for driver aids and the idea of doing active suspension and that kind of thing was was there. I know there are others who are dabbling in it, but he's not resistant to that as well. And I think that's that's a part of his genius as well. But hopefully we've given a reasonable idea of the uh, the unique makeup of, of Adrian Newey. And I think, just as a final point, it's far more interesting that he is so multifaceted and so engaged and so interested and also quite humble in the way he approaches things he's always at pains to deny that he's a genius I guess anyone who's being accused of being a genius would say that but I think that desire for self-improvement the fact he knows he has to work hard and think and understand is a big part of his makeup you I'm gonna bring up a point that I think you made to me the other day Ed uh, so you can take the credit for it um Picking off what you said there, he's 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 never too proud either. It's very easy to be the best at what you do or one of the best and maybe believe your own hype a little bit too much. But you talked earlier about the fact that when Adrian's at a race, he's going around with his clipboard and his notepad and he's looking at what everyone else is doing. We know recently, don't we, that Red Bull have just put an update on their diffuser that was inspired by the Williams. That he's 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 not he never thinks he knows it all. And I think that's, that's really important. And it's actually a really good point about the way he keeps himself current and modern, because I'd say there'd been lots of brilliant technical minds over the years who eventually either burn out or get left behind, you know, things just move on in a way that they either don't believe in or can't keep up with. And it's, it's miraculous really that he's, he's been able to keep up, but I think that is down to his attitude. And as I say, he strikes me as someone who's very aware that they don't know it all. And to not give away too much of that conversation we had, Ed, what sparked that was us talking about if other teams are perhaps a little bit too stubborn in believing that they know more than they do. (laughs) Well, we'll leave people to guess who we might be thinking about when it comes (laughs) to that. It's not that hard to crack. (laughs) A difficult code, always very difficult. But yeah, there's a lot to Adrian Newey and hopefully we've given you a little bit of a taste of that uh, in this podcast. We'll get back to the pod in a moment. But first, a word about our partner, Grammarly. No matter what kind of work you do, how you communicate is key. All those emails, reports and presentations are equally important to the collaboration needed to get things done. And Grammarly can help. Grammarly is your AI writing partner to help you communicate more effectively and efficiently so you can make a bigger impact at work. I know from experience that Grammarly can help you save time on any writing task and ensure you feel confident about what you've produced. In fact, 96% of Grammarly's users report that Grammarly helps them craft more impactful writing and their tone suggestions can help you navigate even the most difficult work conversations. Make a bigger impact at work with Grammarly. Sign up and download for free at grammarly.com forward slash podcast. That's G-R-A-M-M-A-R-L-Y dot com slash podcast. Easier said, done. Well, Ben, now let's try and look a little bit more broadly. Who do you see as the new Newies and F1. It's hard, isn't it, to have a single visionary in an F1 team in 21st century F1. So is there a new kind of Newey that will will come up? Or what will that look like? And, and who are the people? What a horrible question. It is horrible. I'm <laughs> glad I'm not answering this one. I've got I've got the <laughs> hospital pass, isn't it? <laughs> I can feel my leg breaking from the challenge right now. Because <laughs> there are some great technical leaders in Formula One, some great people. It's not there's Adrian Newey and everyone else is an idiot. You know, even in his own team, he's reliant on a great structure of people who work with him. And that's been a revolving cast over the years. So there are good people, but... Yeah, what is the, what is the future? Who are we going to be talking about in forty years' time as the new as the Adrian Newey of, of their time? 
It's going to be Rory Byrne and Adrian Newey as uh, heads in vats, Futurama style, still, <laughs> still operating. Still being wheeled out every time yeah. their teams get it wrong. Still being called upon. I mean, I, I thought a lot about this because it's the hardest question that <laughs> you could have posed, I think, in this podcast. And I was looking at the kind of lineage in Formula One now in terms of people who've worked with the most influential figures. And you can kind of look at the current grid and see two basic schools You've got the kind of Ross Braun era Ferrari school, Braun, Byrne, uh, Aldo Costa, James Allison, who all worked there. And then kind of tangential to that, Bob Bell, who um, James Allison credits as a very influential figure, particularly on him. And that kind of covers Mercedes, Ferrari, Alpine, Haas and Alpha because the key kind of technical people and designers all worked under those guys. Um, James Allison obviously still involved. You've got John Owen, who's who worked with Aldo Costa and has designed most of the winning Mercedes. Obviously having a bit of a rough time at the moment, but uh, has been very successful. And then on the other side, you've got the people that Newey influenced, because obviously he's still at Red Bull. And then you've got Aston Martin have got a Newey product, if you like, in Dan Fallows. You've got Peter Pedromo at McLaren, who worked with Newey before. You've got Pete Mashin, who's at Alpha Tauri, and he went to Renault for a bit. He was at Red Bull. And I think David Warner, I know Williams don't have a technical director per se at the moment, but I think David Warner, who's kind of nominally in charge, was also at Red Bull at one stage. So those guys would seem kind of like the obvious newly influenced guys. Um, but whether they would go on to replace him, I don't I don't know. I mean, Pierre Vosch is the kind of next in line because he's effectively deputy to Newey at Red Bull now, isn't he? Um, but I don't think he has, I don't think anyone, as we've discussed, has the broadness of Newey. He has, he's unique. So whoever follows isn't going to be like him. They're going to be different. Um, Fallows obviously is, is quite highly rated. He was very sought after by other teams before Stroll managed to nab him from Red Bull. So I guess he's got a lot of potential to go on and flourish in a, in a role of responsibility outside of the Newey tent. Um, and David Sanchez seems quite interesting in terms of his backstory. He was, he was involved in Renault's success in the mid-2000s. He was at McLaren when they were successful in the late 2000s. He's obviously been involved heavily in designing what was the leading uh, current Formula One concept before Ferrari messed up and Red Bull got going uh, in 2022. So there are hints there. I think he was heavily involved in the F-duct, which was quite innovative as well in that in that period of the 2010s for McLaren. So there are sort of glimmers there I see in terms of some of the things he's done that look quite Newey-esque, but it all pales into comparison, really. Like everybody presently working is kind of influenced heavily by either Byrne or Newey. They seem like the preeminent figures, really, of, of Formula One since the 2000s. And going back, at, well, since the 90s, sorry. Yeah, it's it's an interesting one because there's different challenges, aren't there, a technical directorship there's just the pure technical management the Ross Braun-esque activities because that's always Ross Braun's strength I don't think he you, you rarely hear him being credited as coming up with this genius idea but he facilitates and manages and makes things come together and that's a really important skill as well to to be had so that there's people who seem to do that quite well but yeah that's that sheer creativity is the is the interesting one. But there are some similarities, like James Allison, for example, when he came back in as technical director, they talked about his competitive spirit. So he's got a little bit of the same as Newey there. He's a, a proper sort of fighter on the racetrack a, a, as well. So th- there's some of those qualities you see there. But I guess, Glenn, it reflects the fact that if you ask the question of who's going to be the next Newey, it probably shows that you've misunderstood what Newey does because it is a unique position. And I say that knowing I'm the one who posed the question, but I posed it partly because that's what people are asking. Well, where's the the next Newey? But you can't kind of work that way. You've got to try and find a way to inject that creativity and extract that creativity because there's really creative thinkers in Formula One who can come up with these brilliant ideas from the people you've got, but without relying on this one, uh, this one maverick genius. Yeah, and also I think a question like that, and uh, I'm, I'm not criticising you because I know why you asked it, but a question like that also I think uh, shows a misunderstanding of how F1's changed. You're not you're not going to have 
people coming through like like he did and like his contemporaries did anymore because of all the things we described about these people are going to come up through departments they're going to be specialists probably um so yeah you're the days and this is the case now this was the case 20 years ago the days of kind of one guy one genius designing the majority of an f1 car are long gone and i think over time it'd be really interesting to see if mclaren's restructure with lots of different senior heads works because that feels like i see the logic in it that you you do need you're going to need lots of senior people providing they all work well together um ben's answer to your initial question ratting off that many names was superb you know i'm so glad you didn't that question didn't come to me because my answer wouldn't have been as good however based on based on what he's achieved in a short amount of time and based on the backing he's going to get I think you could say right now there is a strong case that Dan Fallows will become a, the one of the next big technical names in his own right. He's he's achieved an impressive amount already. And if we look at where the potential is for that team to go in the next, say, five, ten years, even though he's, as I've just explained there, he's not designing every every little element of that car, but the job has changed for a senior technical person now. They've got to provide leadership They've got to. They've probably got to do a lot of the big decision making, but not necessarily all of the ideas. They've got to know what to prioritise, and I think that's maybe where Mercedes got a bit lost. Was that they couldn't they couldn't tear themselves away from what they were doing wrong, because they clearly had some. I think I think maybe data got the better of intuition there. Um, so if if Fellows can stay on this trajectory with Aston Martin, yes, he'll have a big team around him, but he could as this. As Newey's generation, fewer and fewer of those guys are around. And even James Allison's been around a long time now. So Fallows feels like the next one who's going to be the big technical name. Even if what he does and his responsibilities are different, he's got the best opportunity and the best platform now with where he is at Aston Martin. Yeah, and obviously knows Newey so well. If, if you ask Fallows about what he learns from Newey, he will talk about that ability to harness ideas from anyone and everyone. Newey does actually talk about the fact he quite likes what he calls a fairly flat structure technically within a team. Not in terms of that final decision making, which he had problems with at McLaren, but he wants everyone to be able to feed in those ideas. And I think Fallows is at pains to stress the need to have that openness that you've got, however many designers, aerodynamicists, etc. You want to make sure that what you produce is the sum of all their brilliance and ideas. So he works hard to do that. I think Fallows certainly isn't a Newey clone. He doesn't have the same creative spark from what I've seen. Now, that's not to put Fallows down. It's because we're placing Newey as perhaps a uniquely creative figure given his his mindset and his experience. But I think Fallows does understand how to make something akin to Red Bull work. And in fact, he also talks about the need to do something better than Red Bull. He's saying, we don't just want to recreate Red Bull. We want to rec- we want to create a team that sets new standards. That's the thing they're aiming for. So yeah, I think you're right. He's in the position to. That's the big test though, isn't it? Can he, can he find a way to make Aston Martin the team that is at the cutting edge and almost out Newey, Newey? I'm not in many ways he's done the easy bit up to now hasn't yeah. he and that, that's not to that's not to dismiss what they've achieved but they always say it's the last 10% is the hardest bit to find yeah Max Verstappen always said oh there's no point copying because you'll never be a good, as good as the people you copy and so obviously what Aston have done and what Stroll has done in in nabbing fallows and trying to create an approximation of what Red Bull were doing has worked very well because they've gone from what sixth or seventh best team to fighting to be the second best team that's a remarkable turnaround they're so upwardly mobile but there could be a ceiling to that that's quite low and if he can if he can out Newey Newey then he's he's the guy but you wonder at this stage whether he still has to wait like everyone else for Newey to finally stop caring about Formula One and disappear completely or at least to the burn level where he only wants to do the odd little bit of consulting but otherwise isn't bothered then it kind of gives everyone else a chance in terms of the structure um, of other teams, McLaren, I'm a bit concerned about the McLaren structure broadly because it could just be too many chiefs. I, mean, for, I think Ferrari, Sanchez came from a similar sort of structure at Ferrari where you had lots of kind of senior department heads 
or working on their bit and then trying to bring it together. I wonder if it could end up being a bit of an ego fest. The Ferrari situation didn't work ultimately. They did they did produce some good cars with him at the helm, if you like, but they weren't able to really do much with them and certainly weren't able to develop them. And McLaren, they've been in this kind of situation before. They restructure so many times. They've had so many different kind of lines of reporting and never really managed to find quite the right balance and perhaps the most harmonious but not necessarily the most effective structure they had recently was a more traditional one they obviously feel they need to move away from that so i i get why they want to change because you know they're struggling uh they need to do something but i i don't know i sort of believe that when i see it with mclaren i like the org chart i like the idea and i can see why you need to subdivide that technical director role because the team's so big but obviously the key is the execution and how well it works and maybe you just need to have one person in that trio who is the de facto chief technical officer if you see what i mean and who will that be because that that's That's the question that's the ego battle isn't it you know like newey just will be defaulted to at red bull if they ever had this kind of cultural problem they, you'd just look at Newey's track record and CV and go, well, you know, he's the one who's going to smash the heads together in the end or have, as Glenn put it, final say. I, I'm not sure how that works in the McLaren one yet. We'll we'll see. Um, but there, there is also this kind of um, shift where people in senior roles in F1 have quite a lot of strings to their bow and different backgrounds. You've got engineers becoming team principals now as well as aerodynamicists becoming technical directors and and then as well as technical director roles being split out into subdivisions. So you've got specialisms within the management. So we're in a, still, I mean, Glenn talked a lot about how you know, Formula 1 teams have changed so much, particularly recently. I think we're still in this um, period now where they're evolving and not quite settling into one absolutely defined successful way of working, except the one at Red Bull, obviously, because... With Adrian New at the helm, you can't go wrong. Yeah, they're almost unmanageably big, aren't they? That's the that's the fundamental problem. And yeah, yeah, I, I don't I don't know exactly what the future form will be, but they're going to keep searching for it. And there will be people capable of great brilliance in Formula One. I don't think Adrian Newey is ten times cleverer than anyone else who is in Formula One or ever will be. That's just not the case. But he was the product of a unique moment in time and a unique set of circumstances. So you can't recreate him. But I think we will see teams finding ways, certainly the next teams that are having their spells of dominance, the next team to break through, maybe that's Aston Martin, who knows, will have a way of doing things that others can learn from. So that's the big challenge. And I, I would recommend anyone who's listened to this and found it interesting, make sure you get a copy of Adrian Newey's book, How to Build a Car. It is brilliant. I've it's incredible. Got, I've got a hard copy. And as I said to you the other day, I've got it on my Kindle as well, because I like to have it around for reference, because it's just such a great education. And it'll it'll really give you deep understanding of what Newey's about. He really put proper effort into doing that book. Yeah, it's incredible. And what amazes me is there are plenty of people who understand a lot more about the technical side of F1 than I do, but are terrible at explaining it. What fascinates me about Newey's book is that someone who probably knows potentially the most, or certainly of all the people I've ever read anything from, uh, because a lot of other technical minds maybe haven't done books in the same way, for someone who knows that much and is that clever to explain it in a way that's so digestible and I won't say easy to understand, but he takes you along with him. He doesn't just say, I'm really clever. Here's a load of science. Work it out for yourself. He really, it. don't be put off by it if you don't consider yourself technically minded or, or have the, this kind of F1 technical savvy, because if anyone's ever going to help you understand more of that stuff, it's going to be Adrian Newey through that book. Yeah, it's not dense or no. Uh, it's not a, it's not a textbook by any stretch of the imagination. Although, by some great drawings in it, though. Yeah, it has yeah, some great diagrams. But no, it is it is really good. And I guess perhaps there's a snapshot there of why Newey works well with people, and he's not just running around yeah. telling people, "Oh, just do this." He will take people with him in the same way that he's working with, as well as the reader of the book. So, uh, uh, yeah, we're not on commission for it or anything. It's just a really, really good book. So if you're interested in, in Formula 1 or motorsport, it's well worth a read. I think that point you touched upon about him being good at explaining things or working with people is quite key as well because the Red Bull structure, okay, they've had some people poached now, but it's been generally quite stable. And 
that's obviously been quite important to them, even, you know, from how you've got Christian Horner there as team principal managing the whole thing. You know, there hasn't been a lot of flux in the, the management roles at Red Bull and they've been able to, even through the, the more fallow, not Dan fallow, but fallow periods, you know, keep grinding away with the same people. So the culture obviously works. It's quite healthy. And the people, as far as we know from the outside, are quite happy generally. They're maybe just getting to the point now where people are starting to go, oh, this has been enough now. It's been a long time. Let's spread our wings and have some fresh challenges. So we'll see if they can maintain this run of success, even though they're starting to have a bit of a drip feed out. But so many of their competitors, maybe Mercedes accepted, have not had this kind of stability. They're still relentlessly searching for this magic formula which they just can't quite land upon. Yeah, and that's the challenge for modern Formula One teams. So enormous, so complicated, so much potential, but so hard to harness. So thanks very much to Ben and Glenn for your insight. Head to therace.com. Don't forget the hyphen. Plenty to read there. Check out some of our other podcasts, including Bring Back V10, starring Glenn Freeman. There's a new series of that in the works that isn't too far off, and a great back catalogue as well. And also we've got a MotoGP podcast, IndyCar podcast, so well worth having a listen to. And also take a look at our YouTube channel, Well, the Canadian Grand Prix is fast approaching, so stay with us for everything you need to know from the world of Formula One. The Athletic.